Welcome to the Sing When You're Losing podcast, a podcast designed to help you learn to make the most of every situation. I believe that setbacks and struggles aren't meant to stop us, they're meant to teach us. Across this series, I interview athletes, coaches, managers, trainers, and more so that we can glean from their wisdom and learn from their stories for how to sing when you're losing. In this episode, I get the privilege of interviewing Graham Daniels. Graham has been involved in football for a long time and on many levels, as a player, a manager, a director of football, and currently in football oversight at Cambridge United. In addition to this, Graham is the Director General of an organization called Christians in Sport in the UK, where he is active in supporting Christians involved in elite level sport. For many years in the UK, this was a taboo subject, but not anymore. As the world gets stranger, it seems that the need for faith and willingness to admit it has grown. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. As always, this episode is recorded online, so please be patient with the occasional lack of sound quality. If you can persevere, I have no doubt that you will enjoy it and grow from it. So get comfortable and join me, your host, Buddy Owen, as we all learn to sing when you're losing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sing When You're Losing podcast. I hope you enjoyed last week's interview. This week, I have uh, the privilege of the company of a gentleman named Graham Daniels. Graham has uh, spent quite a large bit of his life in football as a player, uh, time as a manager, time as director of a club, uh, and continues to work with athletes in sports. But I don't want to give too much away before we start to talk to Graham. Graham, again, it's a huge privilege to have you uh, on the show today. There's, I don't know loads about you, so I look forward to, to getting to know you better as we, as we talk. Uh, but let's just start with, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, what your background is, and uh, we'll come to where you are now as well. Graham Daniels, I grew up in Wales. Uh, I'm 58, I was born in 62, 1962. In that period, growing up in Wales, one would have played rugby all the time. Uh, so you didn't play soccer really um, at school, but I'd love for soccer. I'd love for sport, of course, all sport, um, but like soccer. Uh, so f- football became the main thing for me at probably 15-ish, 15, 16, I was allowed to play. It really kick-started the rest of my life, I suppose. I, my nearest, uh, well, one of my nearest football teams was 50 miles away, Cardiff. So I joined those as a uh, schoolboy. And I, I was there until I was 21, uh, did some studies uh, whilst I was, it was unusual in those days, but I was able to do it. It was good. good. I was able to do a philosophy degree uh, whilst playing there and then transferred to Cambridge, which is still home. Uh, moved here as a 21 year old to play for Cambridge. Um, we were in the same league as Cardiff at the time. And uh, I guess, let me just start there. That kick-started a bit of a, you know, that was a career trajectory uh, from being quite a young guy, really. Hmm. Yeah. So you got your first professional contract. Where were you at? Was that at Cardiff? Yeah, I played at Cardiff. Um, it's still unusual, but but back in the day, I was allowed to do it. My, my, my school, my head 
teacher at school is very good and discouraged me from completely dropping out of education, which, you know, my parents wouldn't have, my parents were fantastic, but they wouldn't have, they were working people. You know, my dad was a tin plate worker. Um, they wouldn't have thought of such a thing, but I had a brilliant head teacher at my school who actually went to the football club and to the university, amazingly, and helped me to study while I was playing. Yeah, so I was, I was there for probably five or six years until uh, I was 21. But then when I moved to Cambridge, I just concentrated on the football then. Yeah. It was all football then. And that was at Cambridge United. Yeah. Um, and so you then, you moved around a little bit with your football. Where else did you play? Yeah, I, I, in a sense, I didn't move around very much. Um, I, came, uh, I came to a Christian faith uh, not long after arriving in Cambridge at the age of 21. So along with sport, uh, those two things have really fundamentally shaped what I've done, small amount I've done with my working life have been predicated on those two things combined. So at the age of 24, um, I started playing part-time. So for my later 20s, I played, I made some money from playing football in the non-league scene um, and did my training, theology training, through my late 20s, effectively. Um, and then, because I'm so ancient, this, you'd never be able to say everything, right? <laughs> so I'm basically, from the age of 30-ish, um, I managed non-league football teams for people who'd know it would be like conference south type football teams uh, whilst doing two other things working in a church in Cambridge and working with professional athletes for Christians in sport so I framed my 30s around that and indeed much of my 40s uh, and then for the last seven or eight years I returned to Cambridge United uh, to join the main board and latterly uh, for a couple of years was director of football for transition in the last two years with a new owner uh, to a new staff. So that's a broad brushstroke. Uh, yeah. passion, for, passion for sport narrowed in on football pretty much all my life. Um, and working with, the, the reason I've been able to work with so many clubs and players and, and managers is that I've been around it for so long and I've known numbers of people of faith or considering faith and stayed in the room really with people I met perhaps in the 90s uh, and 30 years later I'm friends with them inside and outside the game. Great and we'll we'll come back to that because mm -hmm. that um, kind of your your role at Cambridge but also your role at Christians in sport is mm -hmm. is where we want to land in a minute. Uh, but before we do, a couple of questions that I need to ask you that, that I ask uh, most of the guests. Firstly, do you golf? I know. I'm, I am the only person involved in football who never has golfed. Never. <laughs> I think it was because I had no option but to go off to college after training every day in right. the eight. That's why. <laughs> yeah, sad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're not the only one, actually. I don't think Mickey oh. Mellon ever golfed either. Oh, really? But yeah, but... Uh, oh, no. that's good company. Oh, yeah. I'm, pretty, I'm doing pretty good now. <laughs> He's a top man. <laughs> he is. He is. Absolutely is. Um, but no, that's fine. I didn't think you did, but we, we always have to ask 
uh, because I, I, I then could ask you who you're, who the best golfer is you've ever played with. And the, the most fun is the worst golfer you've ever played with. But, uh, and some people are, are, are mean enough to name names. So you don't golf. What are you doing to stay upbeat during lockdown? So we're in the, hopefully coming towards the end of lockdown now, but we've been in for a while now. So what are you doing to keep yourself going at the moment? Oh, it's quite easy really because work has always meant lots of traveling as it does for many people. So it is fantastic. I'm afraid it's fantastic being at home uh, and doing all my meetings on Zoom. I'm not bored of it yet at no. all. Uh, and so we live in the middle of Cambridge. So it's a lovely city and uh, we just walk uh, along. I'm pointing as if you can see it. We walk along the river <laughs> up into the countryside a couple of times a day. So uh, it's no hardship at all getting some exercise. Not running, note, not running, walking, walking. <laughs> yeah, that's how Very I do good. it. Well, it yeah. is a beautiful place to walk, as you say. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and no Zoom fatigue for you yet then? No, not yet. Not good. at all. Good. Uh, you might have to start traveling again soon. So make yes. the most of it while that's you can. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you started playing football as a schoolboy, Like you said, Wales is very much a, a rugby country, um, but you decided football was going to be your thing. Uh, you then uh, went on to play and do a bit of managing. And then as we say, you've come back to Cambridge with a couple of different roles. Did you ever want to be a manager or a club director? Was that ever in your, ever in your plan? Uh, being a manager was, um, I, I was always fascinated, uh, fascinated watching people when you were a young guy. Uh, I think of it, there was a man called Dougie Livermore who played for Liverpool in the 70s, uh, ended his career as a, one of the coach on the coaching staff at Tottenham Hotspur for many years. Uh, he was my youth team manager at Cardiff. And, you know, like any young man, you you come across some people you think, oh, I so like the way you did. One didn't know as a child, as a 15-year-old, a young man, didn't know what was different about this guy other than he was kind. He was just kind. He treated you as a human, as a as human being first. It wasn't a transaction with Dougie Livermore. And I wasn't, they were much better players than me. I was a very, very ordinary player at that level of football. You know, really ordinary. I, did, I, I didn't play past my mid-20s. So, so I was never one of the, best boys but I was I was as special to him as the best boy and I knew that as a 15 16 17 18 year old so I think meeting people like him through my teens and 20s did give me something of a, a sort of drive to think I'd quite like to lead teams uh, when I'm older so yes I did plan for that um, but I suppose I had to make a decision really in my later 20s um, that if I was going to stay inside football and work, for example, as it would be now in an academy or, you know, try and climb the ladder, obviously you have to do it full time. You have to do that. And uh, it's, never been, it's never been the fundamental drive I had that I wanted to spend my life full time working in professional football every day, showing up the training ground. It's not quite me. And hence the trajectory has been one where I've made sure that I have roles that give me flexibility to do other things 
So I think that's how it's shaped up over 25 years, probably. Sure. Well, it sounds like your what you liked so much about him was just the way he treated people and, and your desire to treat people like that is what kind of wanted you to get into management more than yeah, inspirational managing football. Yeah. 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 Whole people. He was just a whole guy. And you know, he was, he was the best, he had the best CV on the staff. He played in the Liverpool team of the seventies. He, he had the best CV, but he was, an, he was the most humble guy. It was great to watch. So those things are inspirational, aren't they? Yeah. And so your goal really is to do that then to be yeah. inspirational and whether you're managing or not, that's continued to be. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I think particularly when, where, for whatever reason, when one has any degree of power, and I use the word deliberately, power as opposed to authority, if you have power, which in football often, there's an awful lot of power vested in the leadership at football because people are desperate to make it, make it, and you have that power often to make the decision. So, lightly held generously distributed, caringly used, then it becomes authority. You actually admire a person as opposed to the fact that they can corner you if they want to. And meeting people like that it is the inspiration that makes me want to build football clubs. I want Cambridge to be filled with people who are, have authority because they've earned it. I like that. So just, just say that again, or give us your yeah. distinction between power and authority, because I yeah. think that's fascinating. Well, well, if we focus right in on football, we know all, all the data, the research shows that the way the culture is formed, the ETPP system has worked hard to change it. Modern management has worked hard to change it as, as the League Managers Association. But the traditional model historically has been a very dominant manager, managerial structure. Uh, the players have to fit in to the, the culture, the sort of macho, laddish culture piece. And if you don't fit in with that, there's a question on your character. He hasn't got a good attitude, would be the strap line. Sure. That is raw power. If the coach can say, listen, I don't like your professional attitude. You don't swear enough. Or you won't kick people when I tell you to. Or you won't go out doing stuff that everybody does. I don't like that. You need to fit in because you need to be one of the boys here. Power for many years in football has enabled that to happen. It's not earned. It's forced. Authority is always earned. You, you can have power and no authority. You can actually have authority and no power because yeah. you can just be the kind of person who, who's a Dougie Livermore. And the chairman can strip you of your power. But all the players will know you're the guy with real authority here because you really are the real deal. It's a great distinction for me. It's an important distinction. And yeah. football's moved in the direction of people who, have, who, who earn the right. It's brilliant to watch what's changed in the last 15 years. Uh, managers who have to be tough. I mean, it's a results game. So you, you, this isn't about being soft but it is about treating people with dignity and earning the right to lead them, not telling them that you're their leader. So I love the changes that we're seeing in football these days. Yeah, that's great. That's really interesting. Uh, I, I love that distinction between authority and power. I've not heard it put exactly like that before. So yeah, thank you for that. Now my dates might be a little bit wrong, uh, but in 
roughly 1999, you stepped out of management in football. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then uh, by 2002, so three years later, mm. suddenly you were, you were a very busy man, uh, from what I can tell. Uh, you were broadcasting on the BBC, on mm. BBC radio. Mm. You were on the Cambridgeshire Football Association, the Cambridgeshire mm. FA. You were the general director of Christians in Sport mm. and on staff at a church in Cambridge. Mm. So it sounds pretty busy. How did all of that come about? How did you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, you, you, I can easily make a few lines sound busy. It doesn't mean I was. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I, buddy, I think what happens is somewhere in your late 30s, I was 40 in 2002 somewhere between your mid thirties and your mid forties, somewhere in that window, I look back now and I, I obviously I've been around long enough to know a lot of people. And I, I think what happens is broadly like this, you know, you're obviously you're a warrior in your teens and early twenties. You're going to beat everybody. You're going to be the best. You're going to win. And that's a great thing. That's, it's a great, it's ambitious. It's growing up. And then twenties into your thirties, maybe not, of course, not always, but maybe, you start raising a family, uh, you have more responsibilities and you actually learn you're fallible, don't you? So I think in my thirties, you're thinking, well, I'm, I thought I was really good at that, but actually I'm not that good. I'm all right. There's better people than me. Oh, I quite like that. And so I think you're earning a living, you're doing your job, you're, you're raising your family, perhaps as in my case, but you're working out, what am I really, what is the sweet spot? So I think the reason for that list is that somewhere around my 40th birthday, I'm thinking, right, I step back from managing, which is effectively three days a week work if you're managing the top end of non-league, training, matches, watching players, maybe three and a half days, half a week. Um, doing that and then combining that basically with, if, if my football team had a game in the Midlands, I'd go the day before and meet players at the professional club or coaches at the professional club through my Christians in sport work. So they were overlaid jobs. In my late thirties, I thought, mm, I, I, uh, Christians in sport said, would I like to be the general director? But it had to be full time. I thought, you know what, Mike, if I've got to do one thing full time, if I've got to choose, I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. I can always volunteer or take part-time roles in football. Uh, but in the end, that's what I was going to do with my life. So th that's really why the decision came around. And the Football Association, like so many people involved in professional soccer, the FA gets a lot of bad press. But in the end, it gets bad press because it really tries its very, very best at the grassroots of soccer, particularly in the counties and the regions, to encourage people to play and to make it possible. So I spent 10 years working with youth setups for the football association in my county of Cambridgeshire. Uh, and so that, that's why they all land there. I think it's finding a real feeling for your vocation and what's going to drive you. So that's why. Sure. And then kind of what came out in the wash there was uh, full time with Christians in sport. And we'll go into more about what Christians in sport does. Uh, and uh, until a little while ago, you had been, director of football at Cambridge United. You've now moved on to football operations. Yeah, that, that was a, look, that was a, no, you asked earlier, did I have ambitions for things? I mean, you know, it's just a little life, right? But 
one thing I never had ambition for, I never imagined in a hundred years when I was 40 or 45 or 50. One thing I'd never thought of being was director of football of a League Two football club, ever. Uh, you know, I'd realised in my late 30s what I'd need to get up every day and do and that I'd fit other things around it. So to be asked by a new owner of the football club to take a role whereby he would have big responsibility for a transition when he took it on over two, two and a half years of being director of football. I really wasn't expecting that. But what it's done for me, buddy, is... So I've been on the board since 2013. Uh, but those two and a half years of actually being inside the camp and really seeing the pressure on managers and players, because I spent a lot of time at the club, on the bus, in games, and dressing rooms. Oh, my goodness. I thought that... And this... I hope this helps people who are listening and, and are great soccer fans, football fans particularly. You know, at 55, I thought I understood the pressures of football. And it dawned on me that I simply had no idea mm. of the pressure on a young man who's got a baby at home, who's not in the team, whose contract runs out in six months and doesn't think he's got any chance of playing again. And is scared to death that he might have to commute and live at the other end of the country just to make a living. I watched people's eyes. I watched that every week. I watched the pressure on managers. And you think, oh my goodness. So I rejoice that I had my heart softened, even as I had to be the one to tell people they didn't have a job. Yeah. So what an experience. Uh, it's, it's really humbled me uh, as a, as a supporter, really, as I think I understand people's lives in football, boy, we ought to be more sympathetic with those pressures. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, let's just go into that a bit at the minute. Uh, the, we were talking just before we started recording about the issues of mental health in football. Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of reasons for mm -hmm. those mental health issues. There's uh, the, the pressure that you're talking about right now, the short-term contracts, especially in the lower leagues. You know, if you get a year-long contract, you've done well. Anything about that is uh, almost unheard of. Uh, lots of them are six months or six-month loans or, or whatever it is. So there's the, the uh, uncertainty of the contracts. There's the, the pressure of performing on match days. There's the fan pressure on every level of professional sport now through social media. And then when you're coming towards the end, a lot of these guys don't have anything to fall back on. All they've ever done is football. So what are they going to do when they retire? How do they continue getting the buzz that they had when they were on the mat, uh, on the pitch? Uh, or how do they numb the buzz? How do they do family life? Because they've never had to be at home <laughs> for any length of time. In the... So all of those pressures coming together on these, you know, even the old ones in, re in football now retire you know, by the time the early 30s, it's oh, yeah. rare that they're still going by then. So you, you said you've, you've experienced that up close and personal now. Mm. What is particularly speaking to what's happening maybe at Cambridge, but what do you see happening that's, is there something happening to address that? What are you looking to do at Cambridge mm. to help address some of those issues? I think you've got to diagnose, obviously, like physical health, you know the good principles of physical health. It said to me how you keeping fit during lockdown. 
I mean, they're broad and general principles, and you'd have the same with mental health, wouldn't you? Broad, general principles of well-being. When you're clinically sick, cancer, you need a specialist. When you're clinically ill mentally, you need a specialist. So generalizations won't matter then. But in a general sense of mental well-being or mental health, I think what has really dawned on me in the last couple of years goes something like this. Let's stick with a boy in men's professional football that you and I have been involved in. The boy at six proves to be the best kid on the playground. Then he's the best kid in school very quickly. Then he's the best kid in town, then in the, the county, then in the region, then the kids in the England 15s or Scottish 15s and so on. And at that point, the clubs have, he's been picked up by somebody at eight or nine and three times a week he's at the club. By the time that child is 15, it's not a choice to identify himself as a footballer because everybody, most people still think it's a pretty cool thing. He is a footballer. We, you can't say to the boy, you don't think of yourself as only a footballer, as a performance editor. He can't not think of himself as that. Hmm. Now, fast forward that 15 more years. By the time a boy's 30, he's definitely disenchanted with the game. That's a certainty. The injuries, the, the rows, the getting dropped, the deselection, the transfers, the free transfers, the big move that doesn't work out, it's always four funerals and a wedding. It sounds very grumpy, but it is. And so the bottom line of this is two things seem to me to be absolutely crucial to doing general good well-being and health. Number one, every single person from the academy intake at eight onwards needs to say to every mum and dad, every child, you're here to enjoy football. You're here to learn lessons of life from other people that you train and play with, winning and losing, laughing and crying. Every possible opportunity you say, the odds of you ending up doing this as a job are small. Therefore, think of yourself as more than a footballer. I think you should say all the time, all the time, to the point of tedium. And then as soon as people are really in the system, as young pros, apprentice pros and pros we should create a structure where there is no alternative but to train for for other careers yeah i think it should be it's not good enough here it should be systemic that you're vocationally trained and there aren't exceptions at the club now that's a big dream i understand that but yeah i i think it's i think it's great uh was interviewing neil meller recently you may have come across Neil mm. a few times. He was with the FA for a while. And, mm. uh, and you know, Neil was saying he thinks every club should have a, a director of well-being uh, to, to look after the players on that, that sort of personal level to help them begin preparing for life after football, balanced life while they're playing football. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, again. you know, obviously he's a top man and I'm buying that all day long. But I'm saying as well, Behind any such role as that, there's something systemic, sure, entirely fundamental to the game. Um, because we know the average career, even if you sign a pro contract, is six years. Yeah. So it's tiny. It's yeah. tiny. Um, so that identity formation of a player, um, and particularly the cynicism when that perspective doesn't exist within the club. Now, as I said, LMA have changed it. 
EPP has changed it definitely through the system definitely but we can't let go of that because you do not want the boy getting to 26 27 28 as you say when you get to 30 and 31 and 32 that's when the shocking stats kick in of marriage breakdown gambling drinking yeah. despair suicide the you say at cambridge i just think you've got to collect owner board staff or entirely buy into a basic philosophy and and it's counterintuitive you are more than a footballer and i'm not settling for you only being identified as that by me i'm not yeah. doing it uh e triple p the yeah. english player performance yeah. plan yeah. just tell us just really quickly a little bit more about that most people won't really know what Sorry. that is yes yes so it's a it's a 2011 uh, phenomenon and it's the premier league uh, who who initiated it obviously because of the television money and funding uh, and i think this more straightforward way to put it is is a shorter version of what i just said a much more holistic approach uh, to a human being cut me and i'll bleed a much more holistic approach to all people in the game as opposed to a transactional approach that just wants to get the player for the first team so the way the academy system has been structured uh the depth of academy structures the range of skills in academy structures mentally physically technically tactically uh and the number of people working in football i better be careful how i say this people who've played the game obviously can contribute enormously to developing others in the game but it's not necessary that you have played the game to play a significant part in contributing to the development of footballers in a football club and EPP has broadened the horizon on that it's been a real of course it has its flaws everything does but it's been a real philosophical and practical development of, of professional football in the last 10 years yeah Yeah great there are uh, some amazing aspects to the e triple p and the i guess you talk about some of the flaws there uh one downside potentially is while you're trying to do all of this for the individual or try is trying to set out this taking this holistic approach that actually in some ways it still makes it quite transactional when you look at the player going up to the next level and yeah. um clubs are often it seems loath to invest as much as they should in the holistic mm. uh development of a player because yeah now because of the EPP they could lose that player without getting much in return yes uh, i i agree with you buddy and and i think that's where then when you and i are in conversations like this and when there are gatherings of course of academy managers and so on uh that's why this conversation you you have to battle on and battle on to make it systemic so that it you can tell when people really believe things when the cash follows it pretty straightforward yeah. right uh, and look i'm talking to you i mean i met you because you're a chaplain at a club in my league well just think of the huge growth uh, and and it's great to watch isn't it in professional sport but in our world in professional football where there are undervalued often chaplains uh, certainly never paid yeah i find that's fine but 
the role of a chaplain as an independent, autonomous, caring, thoughtful person who sees the person, not the performer first, is an invaluable asset to professional football. That's for sure. I've seen that scores of times. So yes, there are weaknesses and it's nowhere near bedrock in the system. But you push that flywheel, don't you? Push yeah. it around. Yeah. 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 It's, it's still progress, isn't it? Uh, which is good. So you brought up, you know, I am a chaplain at mm. Tramier Rovers. Mm. We were in the same division. We managed promotion. We'll find out today <laughs> whether uh, Tramier are going back into the same division as Cambridge or whether they might be able to stay up. Today's the day where uh, the plan will be voted on uh, as to what's going to happen for yeah. League One and League Two due to the, the yeah. curtailed season. Just a quick update on that. The decision wasn't made that day, but it was made very recently to decide the season on an average points per game format, which meant that Tranmere were relegated back to League Two. So I look forward to hosting Graham back to Prenton Park this year when Tranmere meet Cambridge in the league. So let's move now. Uh, I'm a chaplain. You are the director of Christians in Sport. Mm. There was an article uh, just 22nd of May, I think was the date in the Times, mm -hmm. where you were quoted in that article. And it, the, the title of the article was having God in the squad is no longer mocked, I think. I is, think that's right. I think that's it, good. I think it's what it was called, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know as a chaplain, when you're, when you're going into that setting, you are, you very much feel like the third will sometimes, <laughs> you know, you're, uh, where do I fit in? Because I, I do have a different perspective on life than a lot of these people. I love sport as much as any of them, but I have a different perspective on life and, and on faith than most people here. But the number of chaplains is growing, uh, which is fantastic. And then your role with Christians in sport is also seeing growth. So for, I guess part of the question is, why is it okay for, to have God in the squad now? Why do you see that shift happening? And what is your role in that? What does Christians in sport do? Well, the first question I think is, is continuous with what we've just been talking about. One of the huge cultural changes, certainly in British and probably Western culture in the last 30 years, uh, could be defined a bit like this in football. Uh, there was a most brilliant article in, in the Athletic um, magazine just before the Times piece the other day, where they took a young professional at Bristol City uh, and they interviewed him in the light of a boy of his position and age in the early 1980s. Uh, a, a man who I knew called Alan Comfort, who's actually now a pastor in London and chaplain at Orient. Alan was a very, very good left-footed midfield player. And it was a very clever article in The Athletic because um, they were interviewing the young boy, young man who's 20 at Bristol City, who's just signed a four-year contract. So he must be a very good player in the championship and Comfort. And they tell Comfort's story to the young man. 
and he was harassed and bullied and mocked for having a Christian faith as a young professional footballer in the 80s, quite severely. And it wouldn't have been unusual, really. It, it wouldn't be a, a laugh and a joke. It was, you were really, you were, many people were marginalized for being different. That's what we're back to, you see. Uh, gender, sexuality, religion, anything different was there. You, you didn't fit the culture. This young man, you could, you could almost see his face as you read the article. He couldn't believe that such a thing's ever happened in football. He couldn't even imagine such a thing could happen. And he says things like, well, no. I, I mean, I've told the players that there's certain things I don't think are appropriate to do. And there's certain things I wouldn't say and do. And I, I do my best to work out my Christian faith as a footballer. No, no one's ever had to go at me. What do you mean? And he thought it was almost a made-up tale right. of the old player. So there's a long way around to saying one of the bonuses, if you like, of a post-modern era, one actually, one of the pluses, is that there is a degree of egalitarianism in terms of religion, gender, ethnicity, race. There is. It is a more open place in professional football. So, so I think... Some of the people who've been behind that specifically will have been the movement of chaplains and Christians in sport players over 30 years because they'll have held their nerve and said, of course, God can be in the public square. What on earth are you talking about that God couldn't be in the public square? Of course he can. So I think that's been a big part of this, actually. And I think it's very healthy, too. Yeah. So do you think people like Klopp, um, Darren Moore has been quite open about his faith as well. Uh, there have been a few players, Fabrice Mwamba, uh, and you know, a few others that have been open about their faith. Uh, but do you think, I mean, Klopp has been really open. Uh, does that make a difference? Does that help the, the situation? Of course. Now, I, I don't know Jurgen Klopp at all personally, so I can't comment on, on him. All I can say is what I see. And therefore, without a shadow of doubt, his behavior is partly a consequence of what we've just described. From the, from the late 70s into the 80s, people started to emerge who were playing football and weren't embarrassed to say they were a Christian in relatively tough times. And as the cycles moved on, as football's opened up to become more global in our own country with the Premier League, and the influx of players who come from different cultures, and the changing culture we live in, it's become normal. Normal to say a lot of things about yourself, that your, your personal take on life is equally valid in the dressing room, as well as your left foot or your ability to, to go down the wing. It is better. And of course, then, when you get very high-profile people in football who are unashamed of saying they have... Christian faith, for example, in our context, yours and mine, of course it adds to the ease with which a younger player can speak of his faith. Yeah. Uh, so surely yes, surely yes. And I know we're not, I'm not capturing this very articulately, but as a human being who believes in God and is a Christian and believes you understand God through the Christian faith, what I rejoice in is that since I became a Christian at the age of 21 in the 83 season, we respect people 
whatever faith they hold to, and certainly ethnicity, and increasingly sexuality, there's an acceptance in the game that people are not just footballers, but they have a range of personal attributes that matter to them. And whether you agree with those attributes or not, they ought to be respected because you're talking to human beings first. That is a sea change in 30 years of football. And sometimes the people who've been most influential on that don't get the credit. And I think people like the Football Association, the League Managers Association, for example, the Premier League and the initiation of the EPPP, there have been people there whose names we probably don't even know who said, come on, that conversation that Buddy Owen and Graham Daniels will be having on a podcast, that's a conversation that needs to happen and there needs to be progress in it. I think it's a great thing. Lots to go, but a great thing. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, have you watched uh, the Netflix series, The Last Dance? Yes. Remarkable. Oh. Uh, it, it, look, look I, I, we could get sued for this. You'll have to <laughs> <laughs> but Michael Jordan, I mean, obviously the skill is ridiculous. I mean, it is ridiculous. How, how can you get cross when you're, you're not named the, more, the MVP of the NBA? <laughs> I get so angry that you decide to win the finals on your yeah. own. <laughs> I mean, absurd ability, obviously. But he operates, it seems to me, in the way, and that's the critique that came out of it a bit, isn't it? He operates like you would have in a dressing room in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Yeah. So I, I had a, we, Mickey Mellon and I had a great discussion about it um, yeah. in, in, in our talk, in our interview. But w- what's coming out of what you just said that made me think of it is uh, actually Dennis Rodman. Uh, you know, the, the player who, I, I don't know what planet he's on. I, I don't think anyone does. Uh, but Phil Jackson's ability to manage... Dennis Rodman uh, and say, you know, and Dennis was saying as being, as he was being interviewed, wasn't he? I think, I think Phil just knew I needed to be me. Yeah. I needed to, <laughs> I needed my space. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that was rare back then. I mean, the, the one thing, you know, this is interesting talking to you about these things, I must say, because you see Phil Jackson and for me, he's the star of that series. Yeah. I mean, the ability to manage north to your owner, yeah. uh, north to the general manager, manage Rodman. Oh, my word. I mean, genius management. And I guess they've always been those people. You know, you go back through, don't you? You go through the history of the greats of British football, as we call them. You know, the, 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 the Shankleys, the, the Reeves, uh, Matt Busby, Brian Clough. If people would run through nettles, they'd they'd run through thunder, fire for these men. So they've always been leaders who could treat people well and differentiate personality styles and character. And I don't mean to be demeaning in that because even in the experiences I've had, I've met so many fine men, fine leaders of men. Um, I think it's, it's the ability to ensure that people who don't fit the bill of, of treating players with dignity, that they get screened out earlier 
And I yeah. think that's what the system's starting to do. You, you know, you won't work anymore. You couldn't work anymore and be a bully. I mean, you just wouldn't get a job. You wouldn't get a second job anymore. It's not to say you haven't got to be robust because I bet, I bet Phil Jackson was really, really, really tough behind closed doors often, right? Yeah. One, one. I wonder what yeah. he said to Rodman when he took him aside afterwards when nobody was watching. Yeah. Come on, grow up. Come on. So yeah. what a fine act because I can hear some colleagues of mine and friends of mine historically saying, yeah, that's the problem, Dano, too soft. In the end, mate, you've got to walk onto the pitch. You've got to win your last game or you're relegated and it probably means half your staff lose a job. Okay, all the nice cities in the world won't get a boy ready for that. And I've been in that conversation. There's some truth in that, right? There's got to be some truth in that equilibrium. Yeah. Generally, when I have um, the footballers on, I ask them who their favorite, who the best manager they've ever played for is in terms of man management. Yeah. Uh, and they're all able to pick out the one who, who would get beside them, who would treat yeah. them as a human being rather than as an object. Yeah. Uh, and they're the ones that they, that they truly remember and, and talk about making them the biggest difference in their lives. Yeah. I, I do wonder, you know, coming back to the real time now, end of EFL season, how it ends, how it lands, financial challenges coming up uh, it, with the economy in the next 18 months, salary caps, all these conversations that are going on at the moment with the Premier League and EFL. I do wonder whether there's going to be a premium on the ability to manage people like there hasn't been before, particularly in Leagues 1 and 2, because sure. you won't be able to throw money at it. Uh, half the clubs would go bankrupt quickly. All our clubs, you know, lots of our clubs would. And actually, if it does get really tight, you will need to be tighter, smaller squads, better management, probably more local people, because you can't afford to be putting people up in hotels and traveling the country. Will it slow the game down? Will it make it more authentic for relationships? I could see it coming, which would be a grand thing. I mean, it'll revert because human nature always does revert. <laughs> but yeah. I think we've got three years where we could have a go at this. We could talk about that for hours. Uh, so, many, so many questions. Because what, what do you do with clubs with ambition then that are being intentionally yeah. held back? Yeah. Because of, yeah. but yeah, so many questions. And, you know, again, before this, we were talking... Uh, or texting, you know, that I think, you know, some squads, depending if the season does continue for leagues one and league two after today, by the end of June, some squads won't even have enough players to field a team because of the way the contracts work. Yeah. Uh, so something needs to be done. Something needs to change. Yeah. Yeah. Very tricky. As you, as you said at the beginning, I think in one context, you, players turn over so quickly, they move along so quickly, they go on loan so often, that if you're really serious, it's just no way to live. It's just yeah. no way for people to live. You and I both know players who, who leave crack of dawn on Monday, you know, to earn not very much money, yeah. get home late on Tuesday, rush a day off, early in the morning Thursday, game, home Saturday night, Bit of time Sunday, start again, 40 weeks a year. Never see their kids, never see their family. Yep. Crazy business. Yeah. That's what I mean as director of football. I watched that and I thought, you know what? 
We just need to have a club where people can go home at night and go home. Yeah. Just go home to their family and be more than a, a, a piece of machinery. Uh, so I, I hope that the, those who can afford it can flourish because that's right. But those of us who are perhaps more cautious with our money because we haven't got it, we'll have to say, right, how do we make it better yeah. for the people in the business? Because in the end, it's a business yeah. and the business has to decide how to treat people. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. You got, you got me shouty. But you, <laughs> you oh, fantastic. So let's, we got a bit sidetracked there, which is good. Uh, but let's go back now to Christians in Sport. Mm. So this is, uh, you are the director of Christians in Sport. What does that mean? What do you do? What does Christians in Sport do? You have to find a name for things, don't you? Because you have to set up a charitable trust or a business, so you need a brand name. Uh, so 40 years ago, my predecessor went for the simplest name you could think of. <laughs> she couldn't quite miss it. Uh, Christianity and Sport, Christians in Sport. I think if you had to really nail it down, buddy, you're saying what we tried to set up was something that wasn't particularly trying to encourage people to do recreational sport, which is a good thing, or trying to persuade churches that they should get involved in sport in their community, which is a good thing. We just went really narrow. We said, let's find young people, teens, who live and breathe sport. They feel they were born to play. They're the kid who's always got a ball or a racket. That's the kind of child that's our audience. Competitive sports people. So we work within that group. We don't try and get sport moving effectively. That's, the, that's what we say no to. And inevitably then, there's a percentage of those children or young men or women who become professionals and some very, very well-known professionals and go on to coaching. So really, that's the target audience. Secondly, and as briefly, I hope, at the highest end of that, there are people on the track and field tours, the golf tours, uh, the global sports tours, F1. These are people who are away from home six months a year. We know the superstars, but for every superstar, there's at least 25 also runs were needed to make the event happen. For those people, if they are people who have faith, Christian faith, very hard to have a church provide somebody to travel with them. And for those who have no faith but are on those tours, just like in our communities, it's an opportunity for somebody to rub shoulders in the hotel when they're not playing or they've gone out of a tournament to come to a little get-together of, I wouldn't call it a church because it's not a local church, but a gathering of people thinking about faith established in faith or thinking about faith. And finally, so we'll, we'll work a lot of that as we have a lot of people working in those areas of sport, uh, leaving the chaplaincy work, particularly in our own country, which we know best, uh, locally to local church leaders who can engage as part of their community, where it's very much harder to jump on a plane and spend half your life around a tour. And as a result of that, um, we will have a, quite a, a sort of golden thread. Young athletes, university level athletes, competitive athletes and elite athletes and coaches. That's the niche of people that we work with. 
if they come to faith, we encourage them to get to a church if they live somewhere regularly. Um, we work very, very closely. I've worked very closely for 30 years with chaplains in this country. And I think the chaplaincy work is a discreet and complementary part because as a chaplain within my football club, take me at Cambridge United, we have a chaplain. Now I want that chaplain to have parameters. I want him to care for the players and their families. I want him to be an external voice into their lives. Uh, but there are certain things I don't want him to do because this is a business. And sometimes somebody who's a Christian who's not at the club, but a player in an, another club can provide a different relationship and perspective to somebody interested in faith within my club that maybe be tricky for the chaplain to do. So it'll be another player who's a friend of his who will do that and invite him to a get-together. It kind of works like that. Yeah, yeah. How has Christians in sport grown over the last 10 years? Where, where are you seeing growth and excitement? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we're going full circle. You know, you and I are talking at, at the end, what we hope is the end of the lockdown period of COVID-19. Uh, and the last end, as it were, not the first end. Okay. Um, I guess, like everybody, uh, we joked earlier on about uh, all the stuff we have to do on Zoom these days. I mean, uh, this is nothing to do, nothing to do with the organisation itself. This is just providence of time and history. Uh, every single athlete on the global sports movement is at home. <laughs> Nobody's been training for eight weeks. Nobody's been going to any track or field or stadium. So guess what? We've seen more of our elite athletes in meetings on Zoom together in six weeks than I've probably seen in 26 years. Because if you're going to meet with elite athletes, you have to either go to an event if they're on the tour, global tour, or how hard is it to try and meet with one player, let alone three, in one yeah. city in the country after training? So it never before in history has no one been at work. So there's been you know, 20s and 30s and 40s of athletes in different sports, rugby, football, cricket, athletics, coming in on Zoom once a week. And the marvelous thing about it is that lots of these people know a little bit about each other. They certainly know who they are, if say they're in football, but they'll never have talked properly about their life, their faith, their children, their families, their hopes. And all we've done is come into a Zoom meeting, have a 10-minute piece of the Bible that sets up a conversation about life and sport and reflection, and off they go for 40 minutes into breakout groups of four. So it's peer mentoring. Amazing. It, it's been exhilarating, buddy. I, I mean, it, it'll soon go back to normal, uh, and this won't happen again, I would think, you know? Do you think that maybe there are some new habits have developed and so it might actually? Yeah, I definitely think there are new habits and I think there'll be adaptions for the good from this. Of course, we know in the end, that's why a chaplaincy is so important. Nothing ever beats personal contact. Nothing ever beats eye contact, body language. Yeah. At the club, for example, in football, ever. You can't beat that. No. But some things emerge here, I think, of peer support that we've not seen before because as i said earlier you can't easily spend time with people from another club managers 20 or 30 managers and coaches 
uh, English, uh, British clubs have met like this. Now they'd never have time for it. Yeah. Hopefully there'll be a deepening of relationships and conversation and they may be sustained on things like Zoom. Yeah. So we always hope for good in adversity, don't we? And I certainly feel that there will be good things that will have come out from a difficult period along these lines. Yeah, good. And then just finally on the Christians in sport, what about the people who say, why should you be there just trying to make everyone Christians all the time and tell mm -hmm. everyone about Jesus? Why, mm -hmm. why, why should, those things shouldn't really mix like that? Well, we're both diplomatic, but if anyone wants to dare us to be undiplomatic at the moment, we might as well do it. <laughs> what a stupid question. <laughs> You've just, the person who asked me that question just assumed that they must be right. They must be right, and I must be wrong. Who gives you any right to say, I said, well, I believe in God, and I think God's really helpful, and God created our abilities and our skills. And God is a respecter of persons and he never forces anyone to do anything. And I'm not here to force anybody to do anything. I'm here to serve and care. But, but if you're being blunt, you say, don't you dare tell me that you're, you're on the high ground here because you don't say this, any, anything to do with God should be in sport. We invented football. <laughs> there wouldn't be football in this country if churches hadn't got stuck, would there? No churches who said people are working six and a half days a week at the end of the industrial revolution and actually we need to stop them getting drunk on their day off or spending all their wages so actually let's start football clubs hey god has been in this from the beginning and and i think you know I, i'm 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 stalking it up obviously and you never talk so <laughs> rudely but sometimes people feel they can talk rudely to the christian sure and say what do you think you know why would you come in here forcing your religion and what would you say i'd say well here i'd never force anything on anybody that is the most ungodly thing ever to do if you believe in god every human being deserves dignity and choice but you show me why god shouldn't be involved in the very thing that he invented the ability to run jump kick twist turn build community laugh and cry together Friendships that last to death because of sport. Yeah. And the God who made us, made us for that. So that's why I'm in the club. That's why I'm in football. Yeah. Uh, that, sometimes one of the things that is changing in our culture is just think of the tension we just saw there now in the way I spoke. We would say that a young player ought to be able to have any faith or none and not be judged on it. Well, if a man or a woman comes to a sports club and says, I'm here to serve this club, I do believe in God. And I believe that the God who made human beings is behind human rights, human rights to dignity and fairness and equality and support. I'm here to offer that. If somebody shows an interest in going further in the things of God, why shouldn't they? What, what do you think it's going to affect them being a footballer? Let me point you to that football and that football. Do you think it's going to affect them as a manager? Let me point you to him. It's not going to make them worse managers or players. So calm down. Yeah. And, and I think, honestly, buddy, I haven't heard anybody in five years. I used to be asked that question all the time. I haven't been asked that question in five to seven years. Great. Wonderful. Wonderful. It's a rude question. Yeah. 
It's a very rude question. It is. Yeah. It is. Very good. Thank you. And then <laughs> we'll probably find out in a little while, but just to finish it off, do you have a preference for how the season ends? I mean, is there any particular thing that you think is the most fair? Yeah, or does well, it have to be fair? You're trying to get me through the controversial questions at the end. <laughs> a, a qualification, Cambridge United, a bang mid-table. So nothing affects us. That's, that's, the, that's the qualification to my answer. My personal preference would be one of two. Stop it. Stop, in theory, stop it all now. Do nothing. No one wins. No one loses. Pretend Stop. it never happened. Pretend it never happened. Stop it. Start again next season. Or nobody relegated. I wouldn't relegate anyone. And I'd send the top three up. And I'd maybe have a playoff system if there was tight between. I would just say what would be really fair. And if you had to, you'd do what we're doing with the playoffs. You know, League Two will have its playoffs. And the two will go up and then they play off. I wouldn't relegate people. So I would live with the fact that he'd have more teams coming up. But I need to say, I'm not saying that as a director of Cambridge United. <laughs> personal opinion. That is a personal opinion. I think that would be the fairest way. Reward, promotion. But it's such a devastating blow, relegation. Next year, then there'd be more teams going down, but you've got a full season to play it out. That won't happen. I don't, that won't happen but that would have been the way I would do it. But I don't envy those people making the choices. Impossible situation to find yourself in, trying to please people. And, and you can't please everyone. No. They just no matter what you do, you're not going no, to please can't. everyone. Well, don't, don't be in football if you want to please anyone. Everyone, <laughs> that's for sure. Or anyone sometimes. That's right. <laughs> Very true. Oh, Graham, thank you so much. I, I just can't tell you what a privilege it has been and a pleasure uh, talking to you today. Likewise, absolutely. I really enjoyed the conversation, buddy. Very good indeed. Lovely. Good, good. I'm glad. And I will uh, hopefully see you maybe in a cup next season. Yes. Uh, but, cool. uh, <laughs> but by the time people watch this, they'll know. <laughs> that's right. Let's, let's, for, from, my, from my perspective, hopefully not in a, in a league match. But um, yeah, I hope not. I hope not too. But thank you so much, and I really appreciate it. And hopefully, I'll see you somewhere else soon. Yes, in the cup. Yes, that's right. <laughs> thank you, buddy. Great chat. Take care, and you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Sing When You're Losing. Please look us up on Facebook, Instagram, and anywhere you find your podcast. If you found this helpful, leave us a review and spread the word as well. Don't forget to subscribe or to check back for next week's exciting conversation. You can follow Graham on Twitter at DanoCIS, D-A-N-N-O-C-I-S. Until next time, don't forget to sing when you're losing. <laughs> <laughs>